millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I'm Jeremy Cliff, writer at large in Berlin. I'm Emily Tampkin, senior editor U.S. in Washington, D.C. I'm Megan Gibson, executive editor of Foreign in London. It's Thursday, the 3rd of February. You're listening to World Review from the New Statesman, a twice-weekly international news podcast. Every Thursday, we come together to unpack some of the most significant stories in world affairs. And every Monday, we interview a guest for their unique perspective and expertise. This week, we're looking at the trucker convoy in Canada. What's at stake? And what does it tell us about the role of anti-vax sentiments in nationalist politics? Then, a look at the recent general election in Portugal. People voted and the Socialist Party won. The Portuguese confirmed today with no doubts what they already said two years ago. They want a Socialist Party government for the next four years. What does the storming result by Prime Minister Antonio Costa and his Socialist Party mean for the country? Thank you for joining us. Let's begin. Well, before we start our discussion this week, I have a, a parish notice from the New Statesman International team to share with our listeners. Um, many or some of those who listen might know that I joined the New Statesman in 2019 to set up an international team. So everything from the international edition of the website, which we're very pleased to say now now has more readers even than our home UK edition, to things like this podcast, our World Review newsletter, and indeed bringing in team members and external writers who could deliver fantastic international coverage. And with that now very much up and running, we're now a team of six people. Listeners will know we've recently been joined by Katie Stallard in Washington, bringing our China coverage up to a world-class level. I'm turning back to what I did before joining the New Statesman, which is writing. So I'm taking up a new role as writer at large at the New Statesman. I'll be continuing to write my weekly column. I'll be spending more time on things like cover features. And of course, I'll still be coming on World Review. And I'm very capably succeeded as head of the international team by our very own Megan Gibson, who you may know joined us in September last year from being foreign editor at Monaco magazine and has done a great job as senior editor on the team. So she will be taking the team forward as executive editor foreign. So congratulations, Megan. Oh, thank you. I'm glad this is a podcast. You can't see me blushing right now. So <laughs> Well, it's it's a good week for it because we can recruit you not only as our new team leader, but also as our resident Canadian for our discussion this week. So with that, Emily, do you want to 
kick us off. Yes. I'm going to take the mic from my old boss and pass it to my new boss. Um, <laughs> Megan, there is this, as we said at the top of the podcast, a trucker convoy in Canada. Can you tell us a bit about, for listeners who have no idea, just what it is and why so many are so upset? Okay. Yes. So it's been titled a freedom convoy. So it's been branded basically as a trucker protest where a number of lorry drivers are protesting COVID vaccine requirements for drivers who cross the U.S.-Canadian border. But the protest is actually much wider. There are now demands to remove basically all COVID measures within Canada and even for Justin Trudeau to be removed from office. So Listeners will obviously see the echoes of the January 6th insurrection on the Capitol in D.C., and I think those those parallels are very deliberate. So what how this all started, it began on January 22nd in British Columbia, where a trucker convoy, a collection of, of lorry drivers, decided to drive across the country in protest, drive to the Capitol in Ottawa, and basically just hold up Parliament Hill with their demands. As they crossed country, it picked up steam, it picked up media attention. So by the time it reached Ottawa last weekend, there were, some say, as many as 10,000 people. Estimates have said it's probably much more on the lower scale, lower thousands. But it's been enough to basically bring Ottawa to a complete standstill. Shopping centres are closed. Traffic is gridlocked. And while there hasn't been any violence, there's been a lot of disruption and it's gone far beyond just truck drivers and lorry drivers. It's essentially attracted basically every disaffected fringe right-wing group in the country and on the other side of the border. So you've got QAnon types, you've got people from the Wexit movement, which is a group that advocates that Western Canada should secede from the rest of the country. You have far-right politicians who are on board. Elon Musk, Jordan Peterson, they have both tweeted their support. Donald Trump has mentioned his support for the Canadian truckers at one of his rallies. So it's really brought together a, a very mixed bag and a very unpleasant mixed bag. Lots of signs and placards have used some pretty awful language. You know, you see a lot of references to conspiracy theories, lots of swastikas covering Canadian flags and being draped over various monuments. And so it's just been a really disruptive and quite unpleasant period in in Canada at the moment. This is a mixed bag, but at the same time, um, there's been reporting of how almost a fifth of truck drivers in Canada are South Asian or of South Asian descent, and yet they're not involved in this in this convoy and in these protests. To what extent is this about disaffected people and frustration with mandates? And to what extent is it an outlet for for white nationalism? I think it's a massive outlet for white nationalism. It's well, you mentioned the the South Asian truck drivers, but even as a whole, it's estimated that as many as 90% of truck drivers are vaccinated. So this is a fringe within a fringe. And while lots of people have reported on the ground in Ottawa and said that the the majority of the protesters are not violent or polite, it's obviously 
these uh, white nationalist voices, this really, really hostile, nasty rhetoric that is standing out from the crowd and getting a lot of the attention. So nice to see so many faces. I have a question for you, okay? I need you to help me out. I'm looking for someone. I need to know what a white supremacist looks like. Are you are you a white supremacist, sir? Yes, I am a white supremacist. All right. There you go. Oh, okay. All right. Well, I'm just confused, and I'm sure you'll see why I'm confused. Because all I can see are freedom-loving Canadians. And even for the people who are involved with the protest who say, you know, they have nothing to do with white nationalism, I think they need to ask themselves that why these really awful fringe characters feel so comfortable attaching themselves to this, to this protest. Just listening to this, I'm, I'm thinking back to when uh, you first came on this podcast, Megan, which was to discuss the Canadian election in September last year. And I remember then it, it felt like Canada's politics was such a contrast to politics south of the border in the US. You have a sort of far less polarized system uh, in which you have a, a sort of centrist liberal prime minister, a sort of progressive party to the left, a kind of relatively conventional conservative party on the center right. It looked a lot more calm and consensual than US politics. But the images we've seen from Ottawa in the last days really you know, are more at a piece with what we've thought and known about US politics in recent mm -hmm. years. Do you think this speaks of or augurs some sort of Americanization of Canadian politics? Yes, and we actually had a really, really insightful piece um, that we ran on the website over the weekend by uh, commentator Michael Corrin. Mm. And he said that this kind of highlights the Americanization of the Canadian right. And I, I will, I do like to stress it's not the broad Canadian right, mm. but the, the far right. But, you know, American influence in Canada can't really be overstated. I mean, Fox News travels across the border, lots of online rhetoric, it gets, it gets shared. While Canada's social policies and Canada's history aligns it much more with, with Europe, there definitely has been strains, especially, I think it has been exacerbated by the, the pandemic, which Canada... Mm -hmm. While, you know, it, it's doing quite well in its vaccine program, you know, like any country in the world, the pandemic really exposed a lot of inequalities. And I think a lot of people are frustrated and how their frustrations have manifested has come out in some very dark ways. I, I don't think we can say that we're at uh, American levels of, of polarization because I would say that the vast majority of Canadians are looking at what's happening in Ottawa and at the border with disgust. And I don't think this protest has really brought anyone onto their cause, but it is definitely an example of how disruptive a small minority of very motivated people can be. Do you see this finding expression in electoral politics in, 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 in the medium or long term? Yes. There is, is it the, there's the People's Party, isn't it, which is sort of right populist? I mean, does, where, where does this go? Yes, um, the People's Party. So that's Canada's right wing populist party. And they kind of flirt with the far right. But they're they quite fringe. They only received 
5% of the vote in September's election. So they, they are definitely a minority within, within Canada. But I think the larger problem and the more significant impact that the protest has already had is on the opposition party, the center-right conservatives. So on Wednesday, the majority of sitting conservative MPs voted to remove leader Aaron O'Toole. O'Toole has been leader since 2020, and he's taken great strides to position the Conservative Party as a more moderate choice, a more centrist party, in the hopes of attracting liberals who are unhappy with Trudeau and just a, a bigger vote vote share. This has sometimes put him obviously at odds with the more hardline members of the party and the base. So he's struggled a lot up until now, but I think it's all really come to a head this week. O'Toole, he tried to have it both ways when it came to the protest. He initially voiced some support for the central cause, the truckers who were protesting the vaccine mandate. But as soon as it became clear that there were all of these very toxic fringe elements, he worked very hard to try and distance himself and the Conservative Party from the convoy, saying that you know the Conservative Party had two, two choices, two paths it could go down. It could either go down the angry disaffected route, or it could aim for optimism and hope. And the majority of the base and sitting MPs decided they did not feel that they should follow O'Toole's path and go down the choice of optimism. And they want to embrace some of the elements that are there coming out in this in this protest. So it's not clear yet who will secede him as party leader, it could well be someone who is is much more hardline, much further right. And I think that will cause a lot of problems for the Conservative Party in trying to win an election. Just the majority of Canadians are, are not supportive of anti-vax sentiments, full stop, let alone all of these other very, very dark, toxic elements in, in the protest. There's a slight contrast, I think, with between this and Germany, which is another country like Canada that's been held up as an example of a sort of a country where the centre has held over the last years of, of, of Trumpism and so forth, but where we have seen quite a vicious and quite a wild conspiracist um, fringe making its presence felt on on in demonstrations and and, and actions in, in opposition, particularly to some of the COVID policies. And similarly, where the mainstream centre-right, the Christian Democrats now out of government, is sort of having to deliberate, you know, on how much it should open itself up to that, so those sorts of tendencies. So there's a there's an interesting similarity perhaps there between these two these two countries considered bastions of sort of solid centrist politics. Yes, definitely. And I think a longer term issue is going to be just how other countries and other leaders deal with these fringe movements of anti-vax sentiment. Because we can see how it's very um, attractive for white nationalists or other disaffected groups to kind of grab hold to this issue and try and you know capitalize on it. So it will be really interesting to see where that goes and how it plays out in different countries. And it's a sort of catch-all, isn't it? It draws together all sorts of different streams of anti-system, white nationalist, conspiracy theory type thinking into one into one unit. I mean, I was struck by the list of causes that you you named as being part of this movement. So everything from independence for the West of Canada through to classic white nationalism, it's it's a sort of a, a unifying um structure. Yes, and it all comes under this umbrella of 
the truck driver, which is mm-hmm. actually as an archetype is, is a very useful symbol for the, the right in general, just because you, you can bring in, you know, the working class, you can bring in small business owners, you can bring in, it's largely male. Um, As Emily pointed out, it's, it's not largely white, but I think that the idea in people's imaginations is largely white male. Um, So it's, it's a very sympathetic figure, but as you, as you'll see, and as I mentioned, I mean, this has gone far beyond actual truck drivers and Mm. the vast majority of truck drivers actually don't have, you know, sympathy or support for this so-called trucker protest. I just have one follow-up, which is, you know, at the beginning of this, I said so many are so upset or so involved, but actually, as you've stressed, um, this is the fringe. And I think, you know, when we when we speak about the far right and extremist movements, there's always a um, this sort of balancing act that we need to, to strike between, on the one hand, taking it seriously and covering it, and on the other hand, do we risk overstating it and overstating its influence? So the only other question I have for you on this is, do you think that in all the coverage that perhaps the support for the trucker convoy has been overstated. It's it's really difficult because the support is there. They've had um, you know crowdfunding website GoFundMe has raised um, nine million Canadian, which is about seven million uh, American, and about five ish million pounds. So there there is support. That money is coming from somewhere, but it's quite nebulous and it's it's hard to really pinpoint where the support is coming from. As we've seen, you know, with Donald Trump supporting this and and these American um, you know, kind of figures with cult-like followings, it, it's really easy to present it to make it seem like it's uh, an, an average Canadian grassroots uprising but it mm-hmm. is i think there's a lot more darker forces at work and while you know you don't want to give it too much coverage if it is the fringe i mean you also have to be realistic about the actual amount of disruption they've done and you know there's a blockade at the border and that's really disrupting supply chains so right. it, it, it is a monumental thing what's what's happening even if it is a, a small small percentage of people and it is one that we will continue to watch and to cover. But for now, we are going from the far right to the left and from Canada to Europe. Jeremy, can you tell us a bit about the recent elections in Portugal? Yes, so Portugal went to the polls on Sunday, as we record this, so 30th of January. And to understand the election, you have to go back a little bit in time. So you have to go back to 2015, which is when the current prime minister, uh, Antonio Costa, um, first came to power. And he came to power in a very inauspicious way. His party, the the Socialist Party, which is a centre-left party in Portugal, had come second in the election in 2015. The centre-right attempted to form a government. Um, It collapsed after 11 days. And uh, the president of the country, sort of ceremonial position, turned to Costa uh, to form a very unlikely governmental structure, um, which is was referred to at the time as the Geringonça or the rickety contraption. And that contraption was a minority government of his socialist party, uh, supported from the outside under a formal agreement by two radical left parties, uh, the Communist Party and the, the left bloc, the bloc of the Esquerda. And everyone sort of assumed that this, this so-called contraption would fall apart after a few months. It was not deemed likely to succeed. But in fact, it survived a whole term. In 2019, the Socialist Party gained support. It became the largest party. But the because those two 
radical left parties have lost votes in 2019 and I think started to fear for their own political distinct identities. That agreement broke down over the last few years. So in 2020, the left bloc declined to support the government's budget. Uh, Last autumn, the Communist Party pulled out too. And so Koshta went to the polls on January the 30th because this contraption was no longer delivering him the support he needed to govern. And the surprising thing about this was that his Socialist Party went on to yet greater success at this election than it had in 2019. The two parties to to its left lost support, and it took 41.7% of the vote, which actually gives it an absolute majority in Portugal's parliament for only the second time since the country's reinstatement of democracy uh, in the 1970s. So it's a remarkable achievement, and it makes Costa in many ways, the standout success of European centre-left parties in, in the 2020s. We'll speak a bit more about Europe generally in a bit, but, but who is who is Kosta and, and what kind of figure does he, the political figure does he, does he strike? Hmm. He's an interesting figure. He's the, the son of a communist poet from Goa in India. Um, he kind of cut his teeth in politics in the so-called Red Belt around Lisbon, um, which is a sort of traditionally, as the name suggests, a traditionally left voting part of Portuguese electorate. He was mayor of the capital from 2007 to 2015 when he became prime minister. And he came to, he came to power at an, at an important point in Portugal's recent history because it had been, it had had a very hard Eurozone crisis along with Spain, Italy, Greece, Ireland, it had suffered more than most uh, Eurozone countries um, and had had to swallow a lot of austerity as the price of a bailout, uh, it agreed in 2011. But he came to power as the country was turning a corner. It had, it had exited its bailout strictures in 2014, unemployment had started to fall, but he really presided over a re-emergence of Portugal as a successful economy. So it's enjoyed, um, until the the pandemic struck, it enjoyed growth um, at points above the EU average. Unemployment fell by over half. A lot of foreign investment flowed into the, the the country. Lisbon is is cited as one of the real boom cities in Europe these days for, for for that reason. And so that sort of economic success, I think, is part of the basis for his electoral success on the weekend. And where does the far right come into this? I know, mm. I know, for a long time Portugal has been kind of, you know, held up as having a political landscape unmarred by uh, far right agitators, but that's not really the case anymore, is it? No, and that's a, that's that's a very important sort of secondary narrative of this election, and that's the um, rise in support for for Chega or Enough, as it's called. Now, Portugal, like Spain, actually, until a little bit. Um, longer ago, was held up as a European country that was sort of immune to the the wave of right-wing populism. One explanation for this was that both Portugal and Spain had recent memories of um, right-wing dictatorships. Um, but in both countries, that the, the anomaly has um, dissolved. So in Spain, you have uh, Vox, and then now in Portugal, you have you have Chega, and it campaigns on things like anti, anti-Sinti and anti-Roma sentiment. It's sort of nostalgic for elements of the years of the Salazar dictatorship and and beyond that sort of Portugal's imperial history. So it's gained 11 seats in Portugal's 230-seat parliament at the election. So it's gone from one seat to 12. It's the third largest party. And so that, that that's notable as well. And it, it's relevant also to Costa's victory because I mean, one of the interesting dynamics here is that you've had a consolidation on the Portuguese left. So the, the Socialist Party has effectively scooped up a lot of support from the left bloc and the communists, whereas on the right, you have sort of fragmentation. So you have the centre-right party, which is confusingly called the Social Democratic Party in Portugal, has sort of now got to contend with this other force to its own right. Um, so that's that's something also to watch, I think. 
wherever you are in the world. If you're interested in global affairs, you can subscribe to The New Statesman in digital, in print, or both from as little as £1 a week. That's 12 weeks for just £12. That's one euro a week in Europe and just $2 a week in America. Just go to www.newstatesman.com slash podcast offer. From the New Statesman World Review comes France Elects, a special podcast series exploring the main candidates and the big issues shaping the campaign to be France's next president. I'm Ido Vok. And over the next two months, I'll be joined by special guests to dissect incumbent Emmanuel Macron's record, his rivals to the right and left, and key issues such as foreign policy and the climate. Just search World Review on Acast or wherever you get your podcasts. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Well, we are going to zoom out from Portugal just a bit, and we're going to do so with your help, with a section that we like to call... You Ask Us. You Ask Us. Okay, it was not our most synchronized. It wasn't bad. But that is all right. It was fine. It was good. This question comes to us from Noah on Twitter. Does the success of the socialists in the recent Portuguese election spark the beginning of a new resurgence for left-wing parties? Jeremy, you had, you had alluded to what this might mean for mm. Europe just a few minutes ago. Let's, let's start with you. Do you think that this is the beginning of a left turn uh, in Europe more broadly? Well, social Democrats or center-left parties in general have, have been enjoying a very modest and very partial revival in the last few years. Um, so currently, all five of the Nordic countries, so Iceland, Norway, Sweden, Denmark, Finland, are all governed by left-of-center uh, parties. Spain has been 
governed by the socialists since 2018. And of course, most recently, Germany got a social democratic-led government. Costa took power before that dynamic took hold, but in some ways, he's the best example of it, particularly with this result. And I think um, this result, by the way, does make him stand out. And this is why this is a very good question. There are other social democrats winning elections elsewhere or, or coming into power elsewhere. But his vote share, you know, nearly 42%, is over 10 points higher than any of these others. And, you know, a lot of other countries have experienced fragmentation. So even when centre-left parties are winning power, it's often on quite a low vote share. So in Germany, for example, just over 25%. So his, his, his level of success in a proportional system, by the way, and proportional systems tend to greater fragmentation, is, is really, really very striking. Um, what's also striking is that he has gained support the longer he's been in power. That's also unusual. Usually parties are swept into power on their best election result and lose support as they make choices and, and compromises in power. So I think it's a reasonable question to ask, can he sort of teach social democrats or center-left parties elsewhere? And the answer is somewhat, you know, there there are aspects about this that are quite distinct to Portugal. Uh, So, for example, the recent history, so the fact that he came to power as the country was enjoying its post-crisis upswing. Portugal generally, a bit like Spain, has a sort of there's this culture where the centre-left is seen as a kind of a natural party of government, partly because it played a very big role in the post-dictatorship years. So some of it is sort of is, is local and specific. But I think, you know, Costa has, um, he's been politically deft in, his, in the way he's managed his relationship with the radical left without conceding the political centre. He is personally a kind of a, an appealing character. He, he is a good communicator. He's upbeat. He's optimistic. Um, and I think that, that attracts people to him. And I think that his, his sort of his brand of center leftism might be a model for others in the sense that he sort of he manages to reconcile dependability that you know that, that doesn't put off investment with a with a knack for taking certain iconic policies from the left and really kind of owning them. So in his case, he's focused very heavily on increases in the minimum wage. Portugal has a very large large low wage sector, which also, by the way, was a central part of the social democrat program here in Germany. And so I think there are aspects of this that others might seek to learn from. It is funny though. It's it seems, and you can correct me if I'm if I'm wrong, but it it does seem like just a few years ago, people were speaking about the death of the left and the center left in Europe. Mm -hmm. And now we're talking about, is it, is it, you know, is it back? Is it, is there a resurgence? It does, it does feel like at least from here that it's, it's sort of shifted rather quickly. Yeah. I mean, not everywhere. I mean, we're, we're, we're going into a French election campaign where the left is just unbelievably disorganized, fragmented, um, and and almost just not really part of the story. And indeed, our colleague Ido Fock will be doing a, will be looking at that more closely in an upcoming episode of, of the France Elects podcast. Um, but yeah, generally speaking, um, there have been it is it is in better shape than it was five or ten years ago. I believe that if the European Parliament elections were held tomorrow, the Social Democrats would be the largest group for the first time in decades. But what, what just one observation on this, and, and particularly the debate around the whole kind of quote unquote death of the left. And I think that particularly kind of when the left seemed to be losing election after election, government after government in Europe. There was there were sort of various people coming up with, I think, sometimes overly clever theories about how it could come back. So either it had to pivot totally to the radical left, you know, kind of Jeremy Corbyn style, kind of hard left approach, or you had those saying, no, it needs to rush to the center. It needs to kind of, you know, it needs to abandon a lot of its principles and and, 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 and be ruthlessly pragmatic. And there were some who say, no, it has to become more culturally reactionary and kind of embrace nostalgic social conservatism, uh, and others preaching the alternative. And actually, what, what's striking about the, the, the center-left parties that are in, in, in power in Europe, whether it's in Scandinavia, whether it's in Germany, whether it's in Spain or Portugal, is that broadly speaking, they've sort of stood fairly firm on, the kind of, on a kind of classic vision of social democracy, which is sort of, you know, not uncritical about the market, 
um, but is skeptical about some of the more wide-eyed radicalism of the the hard left. It is confident in its incrementalism and in its in the sort of the recipe it it has for for a successful society. And it hasn't rushed down. You know, none none of these, with the possible exception of the Danish Social Democrats, whose success, by the way, is a lot more qualified than some of these these other examples. They haven't rushed down the road of culture wars. And I think that 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 is interesting and perhaps something that others could could learn from. Um, that's really interesting that you bring up uh, Denmark, Jeremy, um, and something that was from your excellent piece on Portugal is that the Socialist Party is the least popular among the 18 to 24-year-old mm. age group. So it is really interesting. And I know in, in Denmark as well, there's this this idea that the Social Democrats are, are kind of seen as uncool and it's the Red-Green Alliance that is really attracting more people from, from that demographic that is further left. So, I mean, I wonder if it's as these voters age, will they be drawn to more of the traditional social democratic platform or will the whole landscape shift and will they stay further to the left? That's the $64,000 question, I think. And and, and there are debates about where the shifts like this are so-called age effects or so-called cohort effects. So is it something that applies to a whole generation throughout its life or is it something that that changes as people move into different age groups? And I think the jury's out. And I think, by the way, this this phenomenon of aging social democratic electorates may not be so familiar to some of our British listeners because the Labour Party is unusual among European centre-left parties in, in skewing towards younger voters. But certainly in, in Germany, certainly in much of Scandinavia, certainly in Spain and Portugal, social democratic voters tend to be older. And that is a big challenge. And it is a big, it is an existential challenge for parties like, like Costas. But relatedly, I mean, one of the big conundrums here is what role does the, does the main centre-left party play in the overall landscape? Does it have to sprawl across the entire spectrum from the radical left through to the centre? Or does it work with partners smaller parties, for example, the way that Costa's worked with the communists and the left bloc in Portugal, that sort of cover off parts of the electorate that it can't reach. And I think that's, you know, different parties have come up with different solutions to that. And in Denmark, by the way, the Social Democrats have, have gone very hard uh, in a sort of anti-immigration direction, mm-hmm. um, which some have credited with their success. I've, I've read studies that are, that are a lot less convincing on that. But the big question is, how do you organise these coalitions of support uh, in a way that gives you a, a left of centre government? Thank you to all of you who sent in your questions. Listeners, you can send yours in at podcasts at newstatesman.co.uk or by tweeting at us. That's all the time we have for today. Join us next Monday for an interview with Iceland's Prime Minister, Katrin Jakobsdottir. If you've enjoyed this episode of World Review, please like, subscribe, rate us, leave a review and tell your friends. Our producer has been Mae Robson. Thank you for listening and until next time. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.